These are uh, strange words if you're just dropping in for the first time in our church, uh, or if you're just dropping in for the first time online, to just pick up in the middle of a letter um, words about uh, judging angels and Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah and those sorts of things. But they're all tied to a context and a letter that Peter is writing to a group of people. And uh, I hope I can give you a little bit of that context as we go along so you don't think they're just random words that, that we're considering this morning. I think one of the things that I always uh, am mindful of is that when I come to be able to share on Sunday mornings, this is the fruit or the product of uh, hours of my own study and reading and the application of God's Word to me and uh, really what I think God is wanting me to learn. And you get the overflow of that, and I don't always feel that I articulate it as well as I could, um, but I know in my heart what God's trying to tell me, and so I'm just sharing with you what God's doing in my own life. We come to a particular text like this, and I think it's important, first of all, just to be mindful of the main concern of Peter as he's writing this letter. I'm convinced it's his main concern, and his main concern is that they believe in the Word of God that says Christ is coming in power and glory. It's a statement that he makes and then he defends again and again is this promise that's both in the Bible that he witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration uh, and the prophets spoke about that Christ is coming again. And associated with the coming of Christ is this word that we really don't like a lot, but it's necessary to talk about, is judgment. It's final judgment. It's when we actually stand before God and give an account for our lives, or God judges us according to our deeds. And this concept and this reality is woven all the way through the Bible, that there is coming a day of judgment at the end of this age when every single human being will give an account to God for what he has done. And that is what's tied to this this phrase and this conviction of Peter that he remind them of the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We think about a word like judgment, and it's not a word that sits well with a lot of people. It creates a little bit of discomfort, certainly. One author that I was reading just yesterday said, we 21st, centuries, uh, we 21st century Westerners hate judgment. I think they really nail it there. It's something that our world just is repulsed by. And as I was thinking about that and certainly been thinking through this week, I thought, well, what is the first thing that pops into your head when you think about the fact that God is going to judge the world at the end of this age? Uh, What are the emotions or what's your initial emotion or response to that reality? I'm not suggesting it's a hypothetical. I'm suggesting it's a serious reality that um, we will all face at the end of this age. I just wrote down uh, four thoughts that came to my mind as I was reflecting on this, and I think there's probably been a time in my life where I've thought all four of them in response to final judgment. The first is fear. I think some people are petrified by the thought of a final judgment. I know when I was a young boy in church and every Sunday night was um, eschatology night or preaching of the last things, um, we would talk about the rapture of the church, and I would come home and uh, my parents would go out, and they'd say they'd be home at 11, and they g- didn't get home at 11, and I'd go to the phone book, and I'd phone the first elder in the church, and if he answered, I'd hang up because I know the rapture hadn't happened. And I lived in utter fear of the fact that I would not be ready for the judgment. And I think there's a lot of people like that. Frankly, they're scared by the thought of what Ecclesiastes says, for God will bring every act to judgment, every hidden thing, whether good or evil. That can be a terrifying reality if people really look down into their heart and and open it up. And so some people's reaction to a final judgment is just sheer terror. 
I think others, it's ignorance. And it's ignorance from the fact that they've just never thought of it. And particularly in the world in which we live today, we live in a world where, where judgment is becoming increasingly something of the past. We have thrown out morality so there's no right and wrong. We have delayed judgment so that people commit crimes or things that are on the books and there's no punishment for it. And in fact, now sometimes punishment is even just erased. And so when we hear about a judgment of God, we think the same way as we are thinking in the world. And we're just ignorant of the fact that God might care how we live and that God might, in fact, judge what we do. And so there's just a high level of ignorance around in the world in which we live. I think a third response to the final judgment is, is simply a disregard for it. That's why I had um, Peter read from Psalm chapter 10, the first 11 verses. It's a psalm that describes those who live as though there is no judgment. In fact, one of the lines is, they say there is no God. There is nobody to whom we will give an account to. He says, God is, is one who, who forgets what I do, or God, my, my stuff is hidden from his sight. It's a thought that judgment is just a joke. I was thinking of that, um, uh, you know, when Moses is preaching, God, he's saying God's going to destroy the world. And they're thinking, really? You're, you're kind of a goofball, don't you think, Noah? That's kind of something that's really never going to happen. Some people might say, God who? Who is he to judge me? Who is he to come and interrupt my life? I frankly enjoy my freedoms. And so there's a complete disregard for any thought of judgment. And then I think, for me, there was a fourth one, and it's certainty and confidence, words that we don't necessarily put together when it comes to the judgment. But I am absolutely certain that God is going to judge this world at the end of this age. But I'm also confident that because my life is hidden with Christ, I will stand in freedom on that day. I will not be condemned with the world. And so there may be more responses to the thought of a coming judgment, those are just the first things that popped into my head. And one of the things that we've been wrestling with as we've gone through Peter, though, also, in particular the last couple of weeks, is that words matter. Words matter. Whose words do we listen to? Because I've said it time and time again that words shape how we think. And how we think determines how we behave. And so Peter has been trying to remind them to take seriously this this um, admonition, you would do well to pay attention to the scriptures. In other words, he's saying there are words from God, and those words matter. They matter more than the words of false teachers. They matter more than the words of those who might want to tell you, ah, oh, there is no such thing as a judgment. And Peter's comment is, you would do well to pay attention to words that come from God and have been revealed to you. Words about judgment. There's lots of words of judgment in the scripture. I just want to quickly just remind us that uh, what Peter is saying is just not some very peculiar one-off. Um, uh, we will look at what he says about the Old Testament in just a couple of minutes, but just some New Testament scriptures very quickly so that you're aware that this is the common theme of the scripture and a reminder of what will happen at the end of this age. In Matthew chapter 25, for example, we have what is known as the sheep and the goat judgment. And if some of you have Bibles where they make comments on the top, uh, the, they, they're not in the scriptures, but those who give us the translation would say the final judgment. And so this is how it begins. When the Son of Man comes, that's Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes in power and glory. When the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations. 
and he will separate one people, or he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep and a goat. And then he describes the basis of that separation. And then he comes to his final statement, as Jesus tells us, the final statement at the end of that sheep and goat judgment is simply this. And some will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's a reality that Jesus tells us will take place at the end of this age when he comes back in power and glory. Another reference is in Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20 is what we know as the great white throne judgment. It's also a judgment that is described to take place on the great day of judgment at the end of this age when Jesus Christ comes to earth. And there in verse 11, it starts this way. Then I saw a great great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. But those whose names had been written in the Lamb's book of life were saved. Again, a judgment at the end of this age based on what we have done. All recorded. And a book of the book of life for those who have trusted Christ and their names are written down in that book will enter eternal life and the others will enter into the lake of fire. We go to Acts chapter 17, a, a sort of a more practical setting where uh, Paul, the apostle, is speaking to a group of men and women who are interested in hearing about who this God is that he serves. And so he tells them a little bit about this God. Some great things about this God, in fact, and it'd be well worth your time reading it. But then he sums up his statement to them this way. After he's declared to them that there is a God and who this God is and the power and the might of this God, then he says to them, beginning in verse 30, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. Now he commands people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. There is a fixed day, the day of the Lord, the day when Christ comes back, the day of judgment, when God will judge the world, every man, woman, boy, and girl, every person will stand before God. And then in Romans chapter 14, another description of uh, an aspect of the judgment that will take place on that day. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself or herself to God. One more, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Again, at the end, when Christ comes back, he will judge both the living and the dead. I, I do that quick survey just to remind us that this is everywhere in the Bible, and we could have read another dozen scriptures which speak about this reality in the world in which we live. This is what the Bible tells us about the world we live in, and this is what the Bible tells us will happen at the end of this age. God leaves no room for doubt. Scriptures, I should say. Well, God and scriptures leave no room for doubt. This age will end with a complete and a final judgment. 
So with this in our heads, we come back to Peter. And we need to wrestle with Peter. And it helps us ask, so what are these Christians up against? What is this little flock facing that is so urgent that Peter decides that he needs to write a whole letter to them? Well, Peter, as I said, has been clear about the power and the coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the age, this day of judgment. But the false teachers have been equally adamant that there is no judgment. They've been questioning the coming of Jesus Christ. They're mocking it. And in essence, they're saying there is no final judgment. And so it's a serious claim. That's a serious claim that the false teachers are making. It's a serious claim that people make in the world around us. We have to take it seriously. Is there really a final judgment? And that's the issue that Peter is wrestling with. Is there or isn't there? Who says there is and who says there isn't? See, there's the false teachers, and this is the, there's implications behind what you believe. If you believe in what God is saying, then you get your life in, in preparation for it. You, you prepare for the coming judgment, primarily by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and then by living the way that God has asked you to live. If there is no judgment, it doesn't matter how you live. It really doesn't matter. You won't have to give an account for yourself. Just follow your flesh. Follow the passions. Indulge your sexual appetites. Do whatever you want to do because there's no judgment. It doesn't matter how you live. That's what Peter is wrestling with. Who do you trust? Whose word do you trust? Where is this promise coming? What is this judgment? Um, there is, that is in the future, these false teachers are saying. And, and that's another point that they're making. See, they, they know, and the people in the world understand that distance and space degrades intensity of awareness. In other words, they will tell us that there has been a delay between the warnings and the promise of Christ coming and the reality of what they express, and it hasn't happened yet, so that proves that it's just all a bunch of hooey. And they say, well, don't be constrained by those words they tell you. Don't let your freedoms be constricted by something said thousands of years ago, which, which has promised to take place and still hasn't happened yet. Where is the evidence that God intervenes to judge the world? They clearly understand that the passing of a long-ago promise, thousands of years ago, belief in that is really difficult to stick the more time that passes. Again, they say it happened so long ago. So long ago that these words were, were said. And they're looking so far ahead. Judgment is really just scare tactics. It's just a, a, a fear control. And we're, we're aware of some of that. It's, it's just fear control. We will just control them by telling them that there's this judgment coming. And so Peter is aware of this. And the burden of concern that he feels is to remind us how we are to live in a world that ridicules judgment. This is what Peter is writing to us about. How are you and I to live in a world that says, no, it's not going to happen? This is why it matters whose words we listen to. This is why we take seriously what Peter says, pay attention to the scriptures. This is why Peter took some time to talk about the origin and the nature of scripture. Scripture is not just a bunch of uh, imaginative things that men made up on their own. 
It's not a bunch of stories pieced together out of the imaginations of men's minds. Scripture is the very Word of God that has come to us outside of ourselves from God and has been superintended as the Holy Spirit guided people to write not their ideas but the very words of God. And so the issue is whose words do we listen to? Will we listen to God's words or we will, or we will listen to man's words? As we come to this sentence then, and I think you'll see it relevant now, it's one long sentence from verse 4 to the middle of verse 10. It's what we call, just for those of you who care about these things, it's a conditional sentence. In other words, there's a, there's a few things that are stated, um, a condition that's described, and then a response to that particular uh, condition. So the first five verses, Peter builds up what the condition is. He says, well, if God, if, there it is, if God didn't spare the angels, or the ancient world, and he preserved Noah. He didn't preserve the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He rescued Lot then. So based on all of those things that God did in the past, then in the present, God knows how to rescue the righteous and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That's the sentence that we're going to unpack today. You see what Peter's doing? He's making a case that future judgment is real and reliable based on what God has said and done in the past and what his words describe happened in the past. This is why we read the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament teaches us about God. And it teaches us about what God has done so that we can live in the present anticipating the future. So it matters whose words you listen to. Do we listen to a record of history provided to us by God, telling us the ways of God and his ways with creation, or do we just believe the words of those who tell us there is no God and there is no judgment? One of the things about current evolutionary biology is it teaches us there is no God. And as a result of teaching us there is no God, then there is no consequence for our actions because there's nobody to give account to. Again, Peter says you would do well to pay attention to the scriptures. In her memoir, Hold Still, photographer Sally Mann quotes one of her father's diary entries. Short little sentence. Do you know how a boatman faces one direction while rowing in another? Do you know how a boatman faces in one direction while rowing in another? Well, these next verses of Peter are an invitation for a posture just like that. In other words, we move forward by looking backwards. We make progress forward by considering ancient history. To get the boat headed in the direction of the new heavens and the earth, the boat of our life, we do so by looking back at the ancient stories of the fall of angels, the punishment of the world and the rescue of Noah, and the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we quickly look at these stories. These are stories that remind us that what God has done in the past proved that God will act this way in the future. The first one is one that is hard to wrap your heads around. But it's a clear statement that God has made in the scriptures. 
in 1 Peter or 2 Peter, verse 4, it says, If God did not spare the angels when they sinned. That just explodes in our heads with all kinds of mystery. What in the world is Peter talking about there? If God did not spare the angels when they sinned. Is Peter referencing a general rebellion amongst the angels? A rebellion that maybe took place sometime just after creation, but before Adam and Eve were made? Because we know at that point, Satan entered into the garden and uh, he tempted Adam and Eve. And so we wonder, is it a specific rebellion? But what makes it, or general, what it makes it hard to think of a general rebellion is simply that we know that there are still demons at work. We know that we are supposed to take our stand against rulers and principalities and authorities in high places. We know that there is still demonic activity around the world. So it makes me think, well, maybe it's not a specific, the specific rebellion about, or the general one, but is there a specific one? Well, most commentators would say, yes, there's one mentioned in Genesis chapter 6, 1 to 4, where there it says the sons of God, which is a reference to angels, came down and cohabitated with the daughters of men. There was an intermingling of spiritual beings and human beings that created just a mess. And it's a specific sin of angels. Jude seems to make clear that that's the reference. What Jude does, though, he helps us understand it. He says, The angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority, but left their proper dwelling. So this much we can be sure. We need to trust the word of God when it says he did not spare the angels when they sinned. See, what, what Peter is wanting us to understand is something of the extent of God's judgment. It reaches to the very corners of his universe, both of the physical world and of the spiritual world. Nobody is exempt from the judgment of God. And he says of these angels, they will be cast into a Tartarus, into chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Fascinating, isn't it, what he's saying? Tartarus is a word that comes from Greek mythology. It's the only time it's ever used in the scripture here. It's a, it's a word that, that in Greek mythology means almost the underbelly of hell. The deepest part of hell, the abode of the wicked. And what Peter says is that they have been cast there to be kept, what? Until judgment. You understand what he's saying? They've been condemned for their sin, but they are awaiting a final day of judgment. And kept until the judgment. So those angels that sin and have been cast there are right now being held until that final day when God comes back and judges the world. It's Peter's way of reminding us that God condemned in the past sin and rebellion against him, and he will in the future, when Christ comes back, he will judge those he has condemned. No one is exempt, not even the angels of heaven. The second instance is the ancient world. He uses that word. The ancient world is a reference to the, those living before the flood. That's what he means, the ancient world. Now, I know that there's a, there's a bunch of people in our world that don't even believe the flood happened, period. They just say, no, it's just biblical hogwash. But you can actually find accounts of flood narratives in cultures all around the world. There are also those, though, that would say, well, the flood was only a, a specific locality. 
God didn't really flood the whole world. He just flooded a specific area of the world. Well, the language of the Bible denies that claim. And I also think the point that Peter is going to make in chapter 3 also makes that claim then not helpful at all. Because in chapter 3, Peter is going to say, just as God destroyed the whole world, he uses that language, so one day God is going to destroy the whole world finally by fire. So if the flood was specific locale, why would the fire in the future not be a specific locale? So all of that to say, I believe that what Peter is saying here is that God destroyed the whole world. And this reminder again then of the reach of God's judgment. Every single person will face the judgment of God. But notice, there's introduced here what's not introduced about the angels, a note of grace, a note of mercy when it comes to humankind. And notice what it says, but God preserved Noah and seven others. Although judgment, uh, uh, God's judgment on the world is inevitable, it's not inescapable. That's incredible news. That is great mercy to all of us to, to know that God will give the opportunity to men and women everywhere to respond in faith to him and his son, Jesus Christ. I was thinking about this, and you probably have. Noah would have been mocked mercilessly. Here is the ancient world. And you can read in uh, verses 5 and 6 that everyone, everywhere was ungodly all the time in all that they did. It was a world that had just rejected God completely. And for 120 years, Noah preached to that world. He preached righteousness. He preached about the reality of God. He preached about the coming judgment in the flood. And every one of those persons just mocked him, rejected him. They want to hear what he had to say. They would walk by the ark that is being constructed, I'm sure, and, and, and they would see this strange craft being built in the middle of dry ground and say, Noah, you're a real goofball. And then they would get on their caravans and they would go back to their little towns and their little villages and they would say, they would describe this preacher of righteousness and I'm sure they described him in character, character kind of ways and they would describe this boat that he was building because God said it was going to rain and they go, ha, ha, ha. It's like Lot's sons, when Lot came to them and said, listen, you got to get up. you got to come with us. you got to get out of here because God's going to destroy these cities. And remember what it says of them? They thought he was joking. So God destroyed the whole world. But his mercy was evidence in the preservation of Noah and seven others. The third instance that Peter brings forward to remind them of this is the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here it's the specific nature of God's judgment on some fairly specific sins. An illustration of rebellion against God, primarily through sexual sin. But then as um, Ezekiel tells us, arrogance, they were overfed and unconcerned about others. They were unwilling to help the poor and the needy. But Peter emphasizes their lawless deeds and their sensual conduct. And notice what Peter says, though, of that particular situation in verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction. Listen to this. Making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. This is again, again a note of mercy. This is Peter's way of saying, listen, God destroyed these cities. But he did it so we could look back on that and say, well, how can I escape? 
How can I be delivered from that? Is, is, is God just going to not make any distinction between the righteous and the wicked? And as we know, as through Abraham's prayer, God made a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. But he says that happened as an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly at the end of time. Peter is keen. This is so hard to say, but... Peter is keen that we understand the inevitability of final judgment. But not the fact that we are inescapably lost. And notice the phrase at the end of... Sorry, I'm just jumping all over the place. But notice the phrase at the end of verse 9. If all of these happens, then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials and to keep the unrighteous, notice this, under punishment until what? Until the day of judgment. It's saying a lot of things. It's saying, first of all, that when you die, whether you die as a righteous or an unrighteous, a godly or ungodly, you don't cease to exist. You continue to live. The righteous go to paradise, as Jesus said to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. To the ungodly, Peter reminds us that they are kept under punishment until the day of judgment. Condemned, but not punished until the end of the age. And So you see what Peter is saying. He says, listen, don't give up your view and your belief in Scripture about what God tells us will happen at the end of the age. Pay attention to Scriptures. God has showed us what he will do in the past, and he's pushed us forward to think about what he will do in the future. Pay attention to scriptures. So what do we learn that can help us live in light of this? Really, it matters that we learn to live in light of this. This is what Peter's writing about. How do we live in a world that denies the reality of future judgment? Well, first of all, for those who are believers, he says, if God did all these things and he preserved Noah and he rescued Lot, then know that God knows how to rescue the righteous. In other words, we don't need to live in fear. And when he uses that line there, or that verse, when God knows how to, or the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, the particular tense of that is used four times in the Bible, once in the Old Testament and three in the New. And it is a, it's a particular um, tense of the word that refers to an hour of trial or a day of testing. And so I think what he's saying here is the Lord knows how to rescue you from the day of judgment. That's wonderful news. That's incredible news that that when we put our faith and trust in Christ, Christ is our ark. Christ is our savior. Christ is our rescue. Christ is the one that bears the full judgment of God that would be meant for us upon himself so that we stand before him without fear, without condemnation, in freedom. It's wonderful news. Those who are in Christ will be preserved when God finally judges the world. Those who are in Christ will be rescued as God judges the world. Jude writes now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Christ be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority now and before now and all times. How do we live in anticipation of that day? Put your trust in Jesus Christ. He is your Savior. He is your safety. 
Trust Christ. What about the fate of the ungodly? What happens to them if they die outside of Christ? It's not me, and it's not an easy thing to say, but Peter tells us that they will be kept under punishment until the day of judgment. Death for anyone does not mean we cease to exist. Jesus in Luke 16 gives us a little glimpse of that. And people have wrestled with how we actually understand Luke 16, but there's the description of the rich man and of Lazarus. And there's a rich man, and there was Lazarus, a poor man. It says, one day the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. That, for me, is one of the most beautiful helps when somebody in the Lord is facing death. What's it going to be like? How am I going to get there? And I have encouraged more people than not, know that God will send his angels to carry you home. But then he says, the rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. And then at the end it says, but Abraham said, when he wanted to, when, when the rich man wanted some relief, Abraham said, they, his brothers, you have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, if somebody goes to them from the dead, <laughs> the dead are alive, they will repent. And he said to them, if they won't hear the, mo- uh, the words of Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The point is simply the righteous go to be with the Lord. The Lord knows how to rescue them from the day of judgment. But the ungodly are kept until the day of judgment. And so my pleading to any who don't know Christ is to take seriously what Peter says about the days of Noah and the days of Sodom. Don't ignore the reality of coming judgment. Just because you have voices and words and people in a culture that says there's no such thing, don't trust it. There's also a word that tells us there is. You've got to determine which words you're going to listen to. Don't get lost in all the activities of the world. Don't deny what you feel and what you think inside your heart and the questions that you have as you fall asleep on your bed. What happens to me after I die? Don't deny those thoughts. Think them through. Know that God is a God of grace and a God of mercy. He says that he preserved Noah and he rescued Lot. He can preserve you and he can rescue you as well if you will but put your trust in Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul said, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Will you not repent? Why hold on to your pride? Why hold on to, to, to your own level of knowledge? Why not just trust the Scriptures? Why not believe what God says? Why not focus on Christ? Why not look to Him and be saved? Because if God did this in the past, we can be sure that God will do this in the future. Father, I thank you for your word today. I thank you for Peter's honesty and his ability to care for his people and to be aware of what they are facing in the world in which they live. Father, I feel this all the time. I look around me and the odd bit of news that I read or listen to, I I hear judgment being mocked at, human judgment, let alone divine judgment. But there's this intuitive sense within me that that tells me, no, there's got to be righteousness. There's got to be justice. There's got to be fairness. There's got to be a reckoning.
I thank you for your scripture, which describes that. Father, would you help us to be those who hate what is false and love what is true? Would you teach us to discern what is false and would you teach us to understand what is true? And for those who are wrestling with this and they're, they're, they're not one of your children yet, they haven't reached out to you for grace and mercy, would you help them, Father, in your mercy and grace to distinguish between the false and the true, to distinguish between words that are lies and words that are true? Would you help them, Father? Would you humble them such that they will with joy say, I want to be rescued. I want to be preserved. I want to hear over me there is no condemnation now. Oh God, would you speak to hearts today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.